On a gloomy Tuesday in February, a customer steps into a computer store with one particular item in mind. Drenched, but with a pep in his step, the customer walks to the shelf containing HP products and picks out a pavilion desktop with 16 gigabytes of memory and a one terabyte hard drive. They place the box on the counter and grab their wallet. Find everything you were looking for, says the manager. Yep, the customer says. Do you take Amex? The manager gestures over to the Apple section. Did you want to check out any Apple products? Nope, says the customer. Maybe some other time. Perhaps you'd like a demo of the Dell Inspiron Compact Desktop. The manager continues. The customer's face turns into a frown as their soaked clothes begin to puddle in the carpet. I'd really just like the HP. It does exactly what I need and- We just did a survey and found that computer users like yourself don't actually need a keyboard. Interrupts the manager. Would you like to find out more? The customer puts away their wallet, walks out of the store, and marches towards the Best Buy across the street. I'm going to be honest with you. The previous story didn't actually happen. It was fiction. I made it up. But this scenario rings true to the world of B2B SaaS. It's easy to get caught up into what you see as the ideal way you want to acquire customers, but we can't forget what the customer actually wants. You might want to give them a demo, but sometimes your customer is already ready to buy. I think there's this concept of like, don't let your org chart show to your customer experience. Customers and buying software, the buyer's in control and you have to figure out how to like serve the customer. That's Kim Walsh, today's guest. She heads up sales, partnerships, and customer success over at Apollo.io. As an early member of HubSpot and her continued journey through sales and growth, she's learned valuable lessons in the world of B2B SaaS. In our interview with her and Patrick Campbell, recorded at Saster in 2022, Kim discusses a number of topics that will make you a better operator, like hiring tips, effective product-led growth, and much, much more. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, we dive deep with Kim Walsh. We talk about setting up high-quality operators for success, how to crush excuses when hiring, raising the bar within teams, how to master product-led growth, and the three buckets that drive revenue. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for an in-depth field guide focused on what we go over. Let's hear what Kim has to say about setting up high-quality operators for success. Hi, Patrick. Kim Walsh. Uh, I run All Go to Market at Apollo. All go to market. Uh, what does that all entail? Sales, partnerships, onboarding, and customer success. All the things that we should be putting the customer first on. There we go. Yeah. I like that. That's great. And I know a little bit about your history, but like, like for those that don't know, the, the great Kim Walsh, like what's, what's kind of the history of things? How'd you get here? Well, I always say I'm Canadian because that's who I am. So like core. all of a sudden I have a tree of, okay, nice maple syrup, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I came to the U.S. Uh, on a soccer scholarship and uh, go to school. And had a lot of fun and didn't want to leave. Always wanted to come to the U.S. And ended up selling office equipment as my one of my first gigs, which was wild. Then ended up getting into footwear. And so started a footwear company in the U.S. Was like a first employee launching that. Then old footwear designer turned web designer. We started a marketing agency. 
Then we were acquiring all of our customers off of HubSpot's free tool, the website creator tool. If you remember that tool, you plug in your website, you get a score. And then that led me to HubSpot. So then I met like Ryan Darmash when the inbound marketing book was the Amazon bestseller. I was acquiring a lot of customers for the marketing agency. And I was like, wait a minute, something's really going on here. And it was a really cool, ambitious company in Boston that had like so much ambition. And I was like, oh, can I join? And then I needed a green card and an H-1B. And Brian Halligan in my interview said, you're like high maintenance. So uh, HubSpot gave me an H-1B. They gave me a green card. And yeah, I was there for a long time. I was I started I was there. I think when there were 80 people, about 15 million in revenue and left when they were over a billion and 6,000. So yeah, 10 years. It was fun. We could definitely have like an entire six episodes about experiences at HubSpot. There should be like a good documentary series like done by someone on that. But it's kind of interesting. I, like the H1B one is actually a really interesting, you know, thing because I think that I know it's not what we're going to talk about necessarily, but like we actually found even as like a smaller company, like it's great to find not only like really good talent, but even like increasing diversity of talent and those types of things. And I think it's one of those things that it's just stating us out loud. It's a good little hack for like early stage companies even because it now it probably costed a lot more like back then, but it doesn't even cost as much. And so did HubSpot like have a program for that or was it just like you were a one off and then eventually and you might not even know the answer to this. No, yeah, I yeah. mean, you're touching on we didn't even talk about this, but like I was the first person that HubSpot sponsored for an H1B, which is why I was you dealt like, with the lawyers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because I had tried so hard to stay in the U.S., like I was on a TN visa and then went to an H1B, like it doesn't make it easier to come to the U.S. if you're Canadian or for whatever country you're from. It took me 15 years to get a green card. And I actually left HubSpot for 60 days because I was like, you guys told me you're going to get my green card and you're making me a little nervous. And I was in sales. So it was like I like my livelihood was like, did I hit my number or not? And I had to build trust with the HubSpot leadership team. So something was going on. I was like, you know what? I'm actually going to leave. And then I got an offer to join Dropbox. And then I saw Brian Halligan at a HubSpot alumni event because they put on all these events early on for alumni because it was very important for HubSpot to like build the community with people who are current employees or employees that left. And Halligan was like, why do we lose you, Kim? I was like, you know why, Brian? I needed a green card. And then he was like, oh, OK, let's bring you back. So then they brought me back. And then I was like, OK, you know, I need my green card. But it was an interesting thing because no one had ever done it before. And I guess I like to trailblaze a little bit of a path. I like to be like the only one and help other people. And then now there's, you know, the person right after me who got an H-1B and a green card. I just got my U.S. citizenship two months ago. She just got it. Her name's Maggie. She still is at, is at HubSpot today. She just got her U.S. citizenship last month. So it's like so cool because it ties like who you are as a person with like the job you're in. Like I am forever grateful to Halligan, to JD, to everyone who like took a chance on Mark, who took a chance on me. And then I got my green card. I got to stay here. I have a wife and three kids, you know, like that's all like really cool stuff that I was allowed to stay here because of a company. Ultimately, I had to do a good job. Right. But so, um, yeah, now we'll have spot sponsors, thousands of people. And it's just it's really cool. And then from a diversity perspective, it's interesting now, like you can hire re remote employees anywhere. Like Apollo, we have over like 220 employees that represent 106 countries. So like, think about that, right? So it's like, whoa, we, like we just were in an offsite in Cancun last month. 
we had 106 countries represented in the room. So you're looking around, you're like, wow, look at these stories. Like someone flew like 26 hours to get there from India. But like, it was interesting, right? So kind of cool to think it like, Back in 2010, when I joined HubSpot and needed an H-1B, like it was a whole different ballgame for recruiting and hiring talent. Now at Apollo, we hire people from all over the world. Yeah. And I think that's a really bring up an interesting point that I think is so intrinsic in you and Apollo and probably HubSpot, but it's worth like pointing out a little bit. You know, we always struggle with hiring and, and not just hiring, but like hiring a diverse pool of people, because like the first people you kind of meet or want to hire are just kind of the people you know. And you know, for better or for worse, like your your network isn't necessarily diverse, like a lot of times, because you kind of hang out with people who look like you or act like you. And even if they technically are diverse, maybe by the numbers, they still kind of act like you and like talk like you. Right. And so what we did and you're kind of suggesting, it seems like this is what HubSpot did. And correct me if I'm wrong, is, you know, one of the easiest things you can do is like, what are the mechanical aspects we have access to? Right. You know, H1B1, that's something that we can go there that a lot of businesses aren't going to go there. And it's naturally going to bring us more diverse talent. Remote, I know HubSpot always had a little bit of a funny relationship with remote, so they didn't necessarily go there. But remote is a way that you can bring that diversity as well, because it just naturally happens uh, the fact that you can hire anywhere. Now let's hear about how to crush excuses when hiring. Is there any other like mechanical things that are like, I like to call them excuse crushers when it comes to to this type of topic that you can think of? I just think people like the excuses are that people think it's hard. I bring up that comment that Brian said to me in my interview back in 2010, like, oh, you're high maintenance, like you're hard. It's like, yeah, but like, think about the ambition that I had to try and stay. Think about what I had to do. You think about the type of people who have tried to like overcome something in their lives or like got an H-1B or needed or like moved to another country, like. That's what's so cool, I think, about like diverse candidates and hiring people that come from different countries is like, think about what they have gone through. And everyone has this unique story. And then how you come together as a team is so cool. Like, and I'm not saying like we're an expert at it. And there was this thing at HubSpot. I did two things at HubSpot prior to Apollo. One, I helped build the enterprise business. So help HubSpot go up market. There was another comment that Halligan made to me at one moment. He came and my whole team, we sat together. No one was remote. We were all in person. And he was like, Walt, your entire team looks like they could live in Nantucket. And I was like, okay, he's not wrong. They got their vineyard vines, everything. Yeah, like it was just yeah, like, you yeah. know, it was an enterprise sales team. You know, everyone kind of looked like, you know. Sperry boat shoes. Yeah, I got gotcha, like I got gotcha. you. Yeah, you know, yeah. lived in, on New, in New England. And I was like, what? I was like, that's a mistake on my, on my part. Because of everything I just told you I cared about, I actually fell into this, like, you know, you got to own your faults. Like, I fell into it. I was like, okay, I don't have a diverse team. It was diverse in gender. But that was it. And then all of a sudden I was like, you know what? I'm never going to do this again because talking about the excuses, I'm like me as the hiring manager, me as the leader of the group, I have the ability to change it. I have the ability to impact it. Yeah, I have the ability to talk to recruiting. I have an ability to like, you know, at Hemsa, we put like metrics around our top of the funnel, like who we wanted to hire. And let's just make sure it's diverse in nature, starting with the top of the funnel. Those were like some key things we did that were really important. And then the second thing I did at HubSpot was help build up what we call like a faster, more PLG product-led business kind of beside HubSpot. So how I was like, go build a better, faster HubSpot. I was like, all right, cool. So I did that. And I hire, I was like, I will do it if it can be global and I'll do it if I can hire my team anywhere. And then they were like, yes, you can do that. So then on that last five-year chunk of time, my team was from all over the world. I had people in Singapore and Australia and Latin America. And the UK and Ireland, like it was 
that team was looked so different than the first team. And what took me five years to build a $55 million business took me five years to build a $200 million business with a diverse team. So that is cool, right? And then at Apollo, one, one key thing that brought me there was just the diversity of the people I met already. And then I just told you, like, we have people from all over the world. And we'll continue to do that. We just want to tap into like the best talent, regardless of where they are. Well, I think it's really cool, too, because not only and, and I want to get into PLG because I think you're a BAMF of PLG. I'll just throw that out there. You personally, but then also Apollo is really known for it, right? But I think also what's really cool is it seems like the relationship you had with your leadership, particularly Halligan, like you're kind of mentioning, I'm sure there were other people you're having these conversations with as well. They were just like, yeah, OK. Like and they just kind of let you let you run and like being like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Or them noticing like, hey, by the way, like your team looks like they're all from Nantucket or going there this weekend or whatever. Like, and all of a sudden you being like, okay. And like, I think that that space is really important because when you have someone who's, you know, good, you know, and go-getting and wants to have that ambition to do something, and then you give them the permission to do it, that's how change happens. That's how growth happens and all that kind of fun stuff. And I would say the biggest thing, like why I keep mentioning some of those like offhanded comments that ultimately the CEO of the company made that are impactful, is that like radical candor was something that happened all the time. Like, it was like the feedback, the radical candor, the like, we're all in this together slash the economy, like let's hire great people and let them do great work. Like I, I've told people recently at Apollo, like I haven't been managed in like 11 years, right? Like, and I'm a little entrepreneurial, like you don't manage people, you manage tasks and you lead people. That's actually got that from like John McMahon who helped us, came in as a mentor to Mark, and I benefited from a bunch of these, like, learning sessions with him. But, like, that's fundamental to, the, like, the culture of who we were. And I would, I love to try and, like, bring that, because people don't want to be told what to do all the time. You want to raise the bar, hire great people, have a diverse team, and, like, let them be autonomous. Like, the amount of creativity that comes from people when you're like, hey, here's the end goal. Here's what we want you to do. I don't really care how you get there. Oh, my God, that's like where the magic happens, in my opinion. But I think that's a little controversial because I'm not sure everyone everyone would agree with me. But I believe that. I think what's hard, too, is is the radical candor part is also really hard mixed with that. I couldn't tell you the VPs at Salesforce or the C-levels at Salesforce over the years. And I was in Boston, so like, but I and I knew some of the folks involved. But it seems like you know, you just look at the speakers at the conference, right? You have Halligan, you got Darmesh who speaks a lot of conferences. Robert's world-renowned, right? But you, as you mentioned, and maybe he doesn't want this public, hadn't done enterprise sales before HubSpot, right? You have DC, Christopher O'Donnell, like arguably in the top 10 in terms of product leaders, like in SaaS, right? You have Katie Burke, you know, one of the top people, people I would argue in SaaS, if not business in general, Right. You have all these other people who like just kind of converge in this this Boston, you know, little hub. And a lot of them hadn't done it before, you know, but were scrappy. You know, the best I'm going to start calling you the best lead to ever come from Marketing Grader, by the way. That's just going to be the thing I refer to you as. But was it that space that was given? Was it this bar raising concept that you and I have talked about? Was it the circumstance? Was it that you were all like really go like what, what's the little special sauce there? Because. There's companies that have been successful that haven't had this many like all-stars, right? And and that's that's what's weird to me and I've never really understood. That's a good question. I've been having this conversation actually like lately. Hopefully Katie doesn't mind me saying this, but I think these stories are interesting. Like when I was helping build the enterprise sales team, Katie Burke was on the marketing team. I asked her to fill out an RFP. 
Now look at her. I think that what the culture of HubSpot did was gave an opportunity to people who hadn't done it before. That started from the CEO because Brian would say, I will bet all day long on someone who's ambitious, hungry, and wants to do it and try it than experience and someone who's done it before. On a lot of the pieces of HubSpot. That wasn't true when, you know, we got to like 100 million in revenue and needed to hire, you know, a chief sales officer, Hunter, that had like seen the movie before. Right. So there are these things where like some key things are like, did you see the movie before? But there were hundreds of people that showed ambition, gumption, like raise their hand to start something. Or like people would sometimes say no, but there was this whole like nights and weekends thing, too, where it was like, all right, you want to go do it? We're not going to give you tons of resources and support. But go try. And then if you prove it out, we'll invest in you. And that type of thing was, I don't know. I haven't seen that many other companies, but I think it's kind of rare. And I think it's rare to give people who don't have experience the chance like 10 out of 10 times. Next up, Kim talks about raising the bar within teams. It's funny because the you kind of bridged both of the arguments there, which is up to a certain point, give the hungry, ambitious, willing to put in the nights and weekends on it, like go for it. There is then a turn where it's like, and, and I don't know if it's 100 million or not, but then there's like probably like pre-IPO, that type of thing. You kind of need the, especially in CFO spot, like they've seen it before, that type of a thing. And it's so hard to kind of pick those spots. I know what we struggle with, but we were a bootstrap business. So I think this contributed to this is we would have these young, hungry, ambitious people, mostly, you know, kids for lack of a better phrase. And now they're like VPs and all this other stuff. And they're amazing. I never want to build a company without them. But it is one of those things too, where I'm like, maybe we should have hired that person who's seen it before in that particular role. And I think this gets into bar raising that you've kind of talked about, which is, you know, really like, how do you contain that like quality of team? And, and how are you doing this at Apollo? Because I'd argue, you know, there's a little bit of luck with the HubSpot, like everything just kind of came together. And in like the funding was right, the market was right, these types of things. And then all of the gumption and hustle, like 90% of it, I would argue. But like, you know, you're trying to replicate that and maybe you don't get as lucky, but you still got to do the 90% to get the outcome you want. Like, how are you doing that at, at, at Apollo now? One thing that is, was a big piece of me joining Apollo is the humility and the learn-it-all of the team and the culture. So just real quick to touch on what we were talking about to kind of like close that loop on that HubSpot stuff was like, you bet on people who had necessarily had done it before, had all the experience, but they were learn-it-alls. And we just had this like peer-to-peer network, these lunch and learns, just like so hungry to absorb information from people who have done something better. Apollo, same thing. The CEO, Tim, is like the biggest learn-it-all. The entire like VP layer of Apollo is like every there's no ego. Everyone is so hungry and humble to learn. And like that is an interesting recipe. So when you think about like the bar raiser of, you know, there's this kind of like slate panel interview concept we have. The scorecards need to be all like have data and metrics on them because we want to tie everything back. We try and tie everything back to like the key four company goals. And then from there, we have this concept of like, are they going to raise the bar? And then everyone who reports directly to me, I task them all the time with like hire someone that you think is better than you, smarter than you, more curious than you and hungrier to learn than you, because it will keep you on your toes and it's really hard to do. But if you can do that, like that's the definition of the bar raiser. So we try and engrave that into the operating system. 
and like kind of task everyone to do that because that means it's low ego. It means you look around your team. The bench is arguably better than you, you know, like. Well, it raises you up, too. Yeah, of course. Right. Like there's no bad teams. There's just bad leaders. So when you think about you, the, like if your team is amazing, yeah. I think that's a recipe for winning if like things are in your control, right? There's so many things that are out of your control and luck plays a part and timing and all that. But like, I don't know, trying to like mitigate the risk of like, where am I going to place my bets? Like I place them on the people that are humble and like learn it alls all day long. And I think you guys take it, take it another level without like saying, I don't want you to, you to tell me about it. But like you, you not only do like the data and tying it back and everything that you physically have someone in the interviews looking for this, right? Like the raising the bar, like tell us about that a little bit. Sure. So we dedicate like a, a bar raiser. So like in the Slate interview panel, there is one individual that is titled the bar raiser. And they literally, their only job is to think about the criteria in the scorecard and do they get an A on that? If there is anything that is like a B or a C, that means that they're not going to raise the bar. So we kind of dedicate that one individual in the interview process to be the bar raiser. Yeah. And it changes all the time. And they have veto power. They technically. do. Yeah, no matter who they are, which is kind of really interesting. Okay. Ultimately, the hiring manager, if they felt like they wanted to veto the bar raiser, probably could. But but you guys take it that seriously. That's a bold move. But hey, up for bold moves. Like if you're like, you know what? No, like I'm going to take a chance on this person. I think the hiring manager should do that. But, you know, bold move. And now we hear all about Kim's thoughts on mastering product-led growth. I want to switch a little bit because you guys are known as the PLG folks um, or one of the PLG folks. I think you guys are really known, really well known for it. PLG's hot right now. Everyone's like product growth. It's kind of funny how you see this. Like you heard about it a few years ago. OpenView did a couple articles on it. Then this person wrote a book on it. Now all of a sudden, like every other talk is like product-led growth, product-led growth. What is it? What do you guys do? How do you handle it from go to market? Like channel conflict, everyone's concerned about it. Just everything. We'll get into it. You don't have to answer all that right now, but we'll get into it here. So I think product-led growth in its simplest form is reduced customer friction. And when someone wants to buy or try, let them do it. Don't have like friction in the way of letting them understand the value of your product. And that's to me what's like so powerful and make like if you think about that in its simplest form, like doesn't that just make so much sense? Like, why do you have to talk to someone, you know, if you want to buy something? Why do you have to like fill out a form if you want to like try something? You know, it's like just get started with the product. And then I think what's really cool about PLG companies is like, you know, you've got these like growth teams that are like super stealthy and super like T-shaped and horizontal across the entire business of like, what are the points where we can actually try and serve the user and serve the customer in the best way possible? Then you have these interesting things around like content and academies and communities, like trying to like just serve up all the information at the right time with the right message to the user or the buyer. It kind of feels nice, you know? It's like, oh, okay, there's not a lot of friction here. Yeah. I know some people joke like product-led growth. Oh, that's just, you know, self-serve of 10 years ago, that type of a thing. Like, why now do you think this is kind of like a thing? Is it just because people are ready, you know, the systems are ready? Like, any, any thoughts there? I have a couple thoughts, which I don't know if they're right or not. They're just sort of my thoughts. Like, I think like, like 80% of people that come to learn about your product or service are not ready to buy. Do people want you to take them through your sales process? Like, do you want to do a 30-minute discovery call with me where I dig deep into your pains? 
Then we do a demo because I've decided you're worth my time. And you've told me you have deep enough pain points. And then I want to go through like legal and procurement. And then I want, you know, and then I want to like close one you as a customer. And then you want to get handed off to like onboarding and then customer success. Like, I think there's this concept of like, don't let your art show to your customer experience. And I think it's really fascinating. So I think it's just like customers and buying software, you know, people are getting smarter. Like if the buyer's in control and you have to figure out how to like serve the customer, like you can cancel a contract without talking to someone like Netflix is an amazing example or like I've given talks before on like like you can buy the Tesla online if you can buy a freaking car you can buy software right and then these I don't know it's just like I think it's the buying process and how much customers are and buyers are just more intelligent today and the way they want to be served is like changed and I think what's cool about SaaS and technology is like we're trying to just make it a good experience but it's not always, and it's freaking hard. I want to get into the difficulty in a section, but kind of tie through some of the other stuff we've been talking about. It's the continuation of almost of the inbound thesis. Because used to be, you know, I, I don't know if Halligan says this metaphor anymore, but he used to kind of give the metaphor of like, you know, someone walking up to you on the street and being like, buy this, buy this, buy this, versus like asking you a question, giving you some resources, going away, letting you come back, right? After they're educated or more qualified. And it's kind of like you said, like, it used to be like you couldn't even really buy the thing, swipe the credit card online. And now you can configure, you can do all this stuff in your education because there's so much content out there. The best education, the best content you're going to have is your product. And if you have that product that brings them in either through freemium or low cost, like, you know, low touch kind of experience, and then they can expand, like you start to get this like different vibe with that customer who feels like they didn't need to talk to that person who's just interrupting that experience rather than enhancing it, if that makes sense. And so I guess, why is it hard? Well, it's hard because as you get bigger, you have to have a team of people running your PLG model, right? So you've got like the self-serve, which is product-led. And then many companies have like that sales assist. So like, you know, how do you figure out how to enter in a human touch? And when do you know that? That's like really hard as, especially as your company gets bigger to figure out like, hey, how do all the humans fit into the PLG or sales led or sales assist, like the sales assist side of the bucket is like for us at Apollo and was pretty similar at a HubSpot was is like chat, like an inbound chat consultant or at Apollo, it's a product advocate. You know, I think Atlassian was probably a company product advocates. It's like, okay, well, like if someone wants to just talk to a product advocate and then get like send a payment link via chat to buy, that's amazing. Right. Or if they're, you know, want to talk to a salesperson like and they say that in the chat, let's pass that over. And then that's like a PAQL, right? And then there's like a CSQL. And, you know, I think before like this traditional sales model is like go pound the pavement, go like Leads have... stops to close. Yeah, yeah now style. it's just yeah. like there's so much more in between. And why it's hard is because you have a company to build and you have humans running a lot of the process. You have a growth team coming in, being stealthy and iterating on top of a lot of it. You have like a customer support team. You have product advocates. You have SDRs and BDRs. And you have sales reps. And then you have onboarding specialists and CSMs. It's a lot of org chart functionality to serve the customer. And you've got like product and design and engineering. Like how does it all come together? How is it unified? That's why when I yeah, I've been at Apollo for almost four months, well, month two, I think month one's too early, but month two... We deliver the customer journey. And, you know, someone like me kind of new coming in can be super curious and like, 
almost interview the entire org and then come up with our customer journey and launch it. And we launched it on stage and I wore a red dress because like some of our customer in the customer journey, we've got some like angry faces. And then hopefully at some company meeting coming up in the near future, I'm going to wear a green dress because we're going to turn the frowns upside down. Right. But like that type of thing, like it's it's fun. But if we're like, you know, the voice of the customer programs and all these things, like, can you really be customer centric? It's hard. And that customer journey, you're. You're literally like just mapping each step that someone has to go through to become a customer. Is that right? Or in like the different branches? We're mapping the entire customer journey and buyer's journey and branches and then advocacy. And then we're mapping it to our org chart. And it's interesting. You can see how much of our org chart needs to work together to serve the customer along the journey. Where are the unhappy faces? Like, is that where those merge faults are or what is? There's definitely correlation to the the functions and the handoff, right? Because and then you hire people and you give them KPIs based on their own function. Yeah. Those KPIs don't talk to each other. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Hey, you know what the right hand's doing, the left hand's doing. You know, you just scaled 100 people in the last six months. What are those people doing? And they're all remote. So documentation really matters. How are you going to communicate? You know, that's just hard. When you think about that org chart, then it might be hard to give a more of a framework versus what you guys are doing. But if you could try, that'd be awesome. Where do all these people sit? Especially as a go-to-market leader, right? Because if product advocates are sitting under product, which might intuitively make sense, they don't historically have numbers. We've added this PASQL or maybe PQLs, depending on how you look at it. And all of a sudden, they're optimizing for long term. You're like, I need a little short, medium term here. Like, how, like, how does that org chart like shake out more in general? That's a good or question. Or we don't know yet because we're four months in. Yeah, yeah we yeah, don't yeah. know yet. But I think there's, there's two things that I think are super important. It, one is segmentation. So how are you serving each segment of your market? And does everyone in the company know each segment? Who's the persona and the ideal ICP in those segments? How well are we doing against them? And then three is like clear roles and responsibilities. So important. And then how are we aligned to a customer metric or usability metric of, you know, percentage of people getting to aha moment by a certain date? Like everyone has to be aligned to the incentives and the behaviors we want around the customer experience. I mean, I'm definitely fine. If anyone has any advice, I'm all ears. Uh, I think it's like, I think it's hard to try and figure that out. Next up, the three buckets that drive revenue. Where do you find, not the most conflict, but the most like conversations need to happen? Is it between product and sales? Is it between marketing and sales? Like, yeah, I guess I'll just leave that open-ended. I think it's product growth specifically marketing sales supporting customer success okay, like so i think it's everything. everyone but ops <laughs> like operations oh and then they're, they're the most important people to be like that's the most important piece is like the systems and the data lake or the customer data file like all of that the foundation needs to be a hundred percent solid in a plg motion because how do you then serve up the right data, the right propensity scoring? How do you know who in your free user base and pay user base to go after? Do you want the sales team to focus on getting new logos or do you want your entire PLG motion and self-serve motion to get new logos? If you have a really solid PLG motion at some, and depending on your total addressable market, at some point your PLG motion is going to dry up. If you Like it depends, right? So then it's like, what do you do with the free users? 
how do you know if they're ready to buy more or not? It's less scoring. And apps. then, yeah, what do you do with the paid users who are maybe using like one account or two account? Maybe the conversation looks a little bit like, hey, we're using your free tool today. We want to buy for our team. And then it's like maybe the human conversation is like, great. Do you have anyone else in your organization that would like to use free? As opposed to like, let me try and sell you more at this moment in time. Because that whole like seed and grow and land and expand in a PLG model, like just fuels your growth. And then all the things around the customer journey and customer experience, you know, your gross revenue retention, your NDR, your net revenue retention, like all of these become the, the single most important levers of growth. So you don't have a leaky bucket. This might be like a super obvious question. You need to get buy-in from your team, like the whole exec team, let's say, in this particular case. Hey, you know this model that we've been studying in SaaS for like 10 years? Those elements of that that we're going to take, but we, we need to just start from almost scratch. Because what I'm hearing is where the most conflict is, is when we're taking an old model or an old mindset of like, oh, they downloaded the ebook, let's send the outbound, you know, or the inbound cadence to them. It's almost like taking that instinct and being like, wait a minute. We have to like rethink all of these connection points. Is that like a fair like statement you think for someone trying to get in? I think so. Maybe I'll ask you this question because I've no, I haven't been a CEO, but I've worked with a few. So many of them, I'm like, if you could just start over and create a faster, better version of the company that it is today, the answer is everyone wants to do that, but then you can't, right? So it's like, how do you innovate on that? Well, that was my next question around. Basically, obviously, we we're not going to do that completely. And there's probably a stage where we'd be bold enough to do it. My question there was, as you coming in and go to market, kind of where are you starting? Like, is it, are you picking a segment and being like, this is the segment we're going to worry about right now. We know we got to figure out all this other stuff about this segment and we're going to make this good. Then we'll move on to that. Seg is it like that? Or are you picking a part of the business? Like, and you're basically figuring out that step and letting the other steps burn. Like, where, where are you kind of starting from, I guess? Well, I'll speak for Apollo specifically because in a PLG motion, like let's say a PLG motion or self-serve will get you to like 10 million. Maybe some companies will get you to 30 million. And OpenView just had this like really great um, blog article that came out yesterday on this. When do you insert the sales side, the sales assist, the rep driven business? And that's what I came in to see. So like for Apollo specifically, we got to a certain point on 100% what I would call a reactive motion. Then you have to think about like the proactive motion. So what are we going to do as opposed to, I don't love the word order take, but we'll call it like a reactive motion or the evolution of inbound where it's like, okay, these leads are just here waiting, we're ready to buy, right? It's like, how, how would you do with that reactive motion when you have big ambitions and you want to grow double and triple every year, you have to have a proactive go-to-market motion against a reactive motion. That is a massive shift because you've hired people. They've been at your company for six months, 12 months. They are enjoying the reactive motion because who doesn't? Because they're getting paid and they're not, they're, they're working. hitting the number. They you've got this work. winning locker room of 80% of your people hitting quota based on a reactive motion. How do you turn it into like a proactive motion? How do you understand the data on your free users? How do you understand the data on your paid accounts? Do you even do target accounts? Like, you know, we... At the beginning, I sold office equipment like this outbound motion today in software is like nothing like I've experienced, you know, so it's like, how do you tie all those things together?
arguably, I think the way you look at it. So like, you know, I kind of came in and was like, all right, we've got this reactive motion that gets us to a certain point. Good for us, but we're not going to rest on our laurels. We need to be proactive. And what are the key plays we need to do to be proactive and who's going to be proactive? It's not just sales that's proactive. It's onboarding that's proactive. It's customer success that's proactive. It's growth that's proactive. It's running experiments with pricing and packaging that's proactive. It's like the entire company goes to like this proactive mindset. That's what we've done recently. It's a mindset for sure, because you've hired people and you're changing things. It's a big shift. It's new. And there's not a ton of companies that have done this phenomenally well yet. There's tons of companies who have elements of it. And I have so many more questions than answers, which I think means we're in, we're in a good spot with product-led growth, right? In this newness, what does good look like to you right now? Like, have you established that for Apollo? Like, maybe not specifically like in Apollo context, but like, what does good look like? North Star, that type of thing for you guys? Well, I think that is kind of like a CEO question, which is I, I ask that question because I think that's important, right? Because as the CEO, you kind of dictate the vision of the company. And you should be. You should be, hopefully, right? Like, it should be great. People should be buying in. And I think when you think about two years out and you think about your PLG business and you think about those three buckets I just said, self-serve, sales assist, rep driven, what's the percentage of revenue that comes from all three of those buckets? The answer to that matters because if the CEO of the business says 100% self-serve, that's okay, but that's a different business than a sales assist bucket and a rep driven bucket. If it's like 40% self-serve, 20% sales assist, 40% human led or like rep driven. Okay, great. Let's do a three-year financial plan and let's actually map the org chart and the humans to the ratios and build that out. Like that's where I'm at is like, okay, cool. Like what's our two-year, what's our one-year plan? What's our two-year plan? What's our three-year plan? What's the percentage of revenue that comes from each one of these buckets? What's the, almost looking at them as three separate businesses. You do LTV to CAC on each one. There's segments of each one. And then you're like, ah, okay, I have an answer because now I know that it's 40, 20, 40. Okay, cool. We're good. We're aligned. But I think that one other quick thing is like, I think the self-serve bucket needs to be growing faster than every other bucket. Because it's got to support the other buckets. Exactly. Because if it's not, then you're going to be back to a sales-driven business, which is not bad, but it's a decision. Yeah, exactly. It's a decision. It's a way up the mountain. And if you're setting yourself up to be not that, you don't want that. So So the leading indicator is like, are we hitting all of our self-serve metrics? Our weekly active users, our daily active users, our percentage of people hitting an aha moment. What's the definition of that aha moment? I would also say in a PLG model, like documentation, a glossary of terms. Like this is all new for so many of us. Like it all matters. Are we all saying the same thing? That's great. This is good. This is going to screw with my mind next couple of days, which I'm really enjoying. That's great. We're kind of in a similar situation where we, I think we have to kind of pick those segments, especially after this, this merger acquisition. And so it's like trying to figure out, because there's, there's a way our business grows through this pure PLG motion. And, and with ProfitWell specifically, like that's what we did, freemium, all these types of things. Paddle's a little bit different. And so, but there's also a way, play where we're like, you know, up market come down, which I know a lot of people here at SAS are trying to do. So this is fantastic. Thank you for this. Anything you want to plug? Where can people find you? Kim at Apollo.io. And prepare yeah, for lots of emails. There we're you hiring. <laughs> there so you come go. Join so if us. you want a job, you yeah. want to get deep into this or help figure this out, yeah, email Kim. So awesome. Thanks. Thank you. A massive shout out to Kim for doing this podcast. Now you have what it takes to reduce friction for your customers. 
Today, we talked about setting up high-quality operators for success, how to crush excuses when hiring, raising the bar within teams, how to master product-led growth, and the three buckets that drive revenue. Make sure to give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lesson Kim taught you from today's episode. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Studios dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.